Hello, I'm James Spoey. Joining me is Claire White. Hello. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We're here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and stories. Today, we are talking about... Journey to the West. Yes! Journey to the West is considered one of China's greatest novels. It is the story of Tripitaka, a monk chosen by Buddha to journey to India from China to obtain secret Buddhist scriptures necessary to enlighten the Chinese people. On this journey, he is provided with a dragon turned into a horse to take him there, and three protectors, one of them being the ever-famous Monkey King. The book was written by an anonymous author in 1592 and is based on the real-life journey of the monk, Sen John. Now, James is going to talk about the history of... Oh, so many things. I'm basically going to talk about how Journey to the West is an allegory of the three religions and how a Western reader can understand all the layers of symbolism, at least in a big picture way, in the novel. That sounds fascinating and terrifying. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to talk about basically Saint-Jean and how he became the journey to the West that we know today. So go ahead, James. Yeah. Oh, something we haven't said yet that uh, I must say <laughs> as I begin my segment is that we're pairing this right. with Dragon Ball Z. Uh, Dragon Ball Z is one of my favorite things ever. So it's very exciting to finally get to find out this, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago ancestor of Dragon Ball Z. That's what we're doing today. So that's our purpose. The purpose of Journey to the West uh, is to be an allegory of the three religions, which I mentioned before. Those three religions are Taoism, Confucianism, and Buddhism. And what the book is trying to do, what the novel is trying to do, is to tell an allegorical story that works as an allegory for all three religions simultaneously, which is, I think, part of why it takes a hundred chapters and thousands of pages to do. And from what I've read, I'm hoping I'll understand more about all of the religions and the allegory in the book after your segment. From what I've read and understood, it does it very well. It does it masterfully. I, I mean, one of the things that's intimidating about talking about all the symbolism is the layers of it in everything that they do. But uh, I should get moving so that we can do that. I think the big idea I want you to remember as we talk about all three of these and move into how they are uh, demonstrated in the book and the symbolism that's used in the book for each is that the main goal of the book is to blend them as was part of a movement that existed in the late Ming Dynasty of which this book is born. That movement being three religions as one. And I learned a new word reading and learning about this book, and that word is syncretism. When you take three separate ideas, religions, or beliefs, and you turn them into an amalgamation. So there was a movement to combine the three religions? Yes. Yes. To and say, it never stuck? No, no. Actually, I think you could say that in a way Chinese culture is... Mm -hmm. an amalgam of all of these things, that those influences are, are like felt Journey throughout Journey to it. the West. Yes, yes. It, it, to me, when I was reading about this, the thing that struck me was that this novel is distinctly Chinese for taking all of these ideas that have influenced it for thousands of years and saying they can all exist as one together, 
We can fulfill all of these ideals together. They're all really, truly headed to the same place, even though we fought each other before about them. I, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself to the opinion segment. I love that idea. I find it very attractive um, a, a, as a way of finding cultural unity and common ground among a people. And it made me wonder, what would the American version of that be? Anyway, <laughs> Claire's giving me the, the move on symbol, and so I shall. She is right. So, Taoism, Confucianism, and Buddhism are all from around the roughly the same time period, thousands of years ago, somewhere between the 4th and 6th century BC. Now, Taoism and Confucianism have a shared heritage in the traditional folk religion of China. It's just that around that time, somewhere in the years 400 to 600, around 500 for Confucius, two different, let's say, philosophical leaders, and sometimes called religious leaders, uh, started to codify it, started to say, okay, here are all these different ideas that have existed in our culture about our place in the cosmos, and all these ideas about what it means to be a good person and to lead a good life in society. Now, the big difference with Taoism and Confucianism with these ideas, and, and, and I'm going to be doing a gross oversimplification, is that Taoism believes that that's primarily more of an individual pursuit, that there is the self-development that is common to all three of the three religions, um, but that really you're not supposed to be messing with anyone else. You're supposed to try to take the natural way, and that part of that is not forcing um, the, the kinds of rules and regulations that Confucianism likes to use as part of their idea of implementing practically on earth a good society. So. Confucianism became very much part of the government and the way things work and the way history is taught. And part of being a good person and a virtuous uh, bureaucrat is that we're going to make you learn about virtue from these texts and we're going to make you pass an exam about it. So Confucianism has more rules, more yes. ways to – if you follow these steps, you're doing it right. Well, yes, and, and, and also saying, hey, this is your role. This is your position play your position. This is how to be a good son. This is how to be a good wife. This is how to be a good ruler. These are the traditions and you should follow them. These are the good people who have done it better in the past. You should learn about them. And Taoism doesn't necessitate so much of that historical learning. Yes, there are teachings, but it's a lot more about a way of being and not interfering with others in that same way that Confucianism says, no, we're going to interfere with you. You need some laws to help you out. Okay. Right? Buddhism is more easy to relate to Taoism. And in fact, the way Buddhism came from India into China was by using Taoist language to talk about the world. <laughs> and the Chinese found that very attractive in this idea of attempting to reach nirvana. The Chinese folded right into Taoism so that Chinese Buddhism was almost immediately different from just regular Indian Buddhism uh, and more like what we would associate with the Zen Buddhism of Japan, where it's uh, a great focus on meditation and achieving a nirvana state that was closer to, like, uh, the, Tao ide the Taoist idea of heaven. Okay. And Buddhists believe in a reincarnation that takes place because you haven't yet figured out how to deal with reality and mm. to let it go. And it talks about the impermanence of all things and the way that desires and negative emotions lead to this endless cycle of suffering that you're trying to get out of and reach nirvana. Right. You're trying to not be reincarnated anymore because you have gotten beyond 
the material world. Yes. And that works very nicely with the Taoists and their cultivation of the self and cultivation of the Mm. chi in a way that lengthens the life and turns you into an immortal. So they but, found and Confucianism doesn't have that. Confucianism does believe in refining the chi you, because they're born out of the same Chinese religious and uh, cosmological traditions. Uh, Confucianists, I, I heard it said, believe in the same kind of um, uh, heaven. They believe in the same kind of universe that the Taoists do, but they find it less practical to focus on. Okay. I want to mention, so it seems maybe you, the listener, think all these folks should be able to get along. I want to mention one specific time they really, really didn't, just so you understand why the message of this book is important and why they harp on all three getting along so much. In 845, the emperor Wu Zong of the Tang had a Taoist monk advisor that he trusted greatly who advised him to persecute the Buddhists to the tune of 4,600 temples destroyed, 40,000 shrines, and 260,500 monks forced into the laity. What's the laity? Uh, the laity are those who are not practicing the religious life in a formal way. Okay. Buddhism had a resurgence and managed to be a part of Chinese life, but it has always felt the weight of that persecution. And so when we have a book like this that comes out and says, actually, let's remember that we're all trying to get to the same place. So, now it's time to talk about how all these things take place in Journey to the West and then how the book starts to blend the three all together. So, the Taoist influence is really easy to see immediately because these people have martial arts superpowers. The kind of stuff that you'd recognize from Dragon Ball Z, the kind of stuff that has gotten me excited since I was a kid and no less today. Um, because the Taoists also have this idea from Chinese folk religion as well that if you refine your chi, you will not only lengthen your life and get immortality, but along the way, you're going to get some cool superpowers. You're going to be able to fly, man. You might be able to shoot energy out of your hands. So, Is that where the somersaults come in? Yes. Where the monkey king can do a somersault and end up in just another part of the world. Yes, yes. See, that's Taoist, but it's also Buddhist. And I'll get into that if we have time, how they're working those two things together in that somersault ability. But big picture Taoism, we're using these super martial arts powers to fight demons, ogres, monsters, all the way to get to Buddha and the scripture, right? Mm -hmm. In Taoism, demons exist in the body and they interrupt the proper functioning of things. As you attempt to refine your chi within yourself, you must defeat these demons and open the right paths and ways. With your supernatural fighting abilities in your body? <laughs> well, yeah, something like that. You're, you're developing that, that fighting ability on the outside as a part of refining your chi on the inside that's going to help your whole body work harmoniously the way it should and slay those inner demons. So we are acting that internal struggle out throughout the novel. Mm. Yes. So that's a big picture thing that any Westerner can easily grasp. Also, we're doing something called, well, that Anthony C. U. refers to as internal alchemy. So you know how I was telling you all those things work inside yourself? They talk about um, the different parts of the body as different elements. The three big fighting Taoist superhero type characters in the book all have elements that they are associated with. And you may have noticed that in the chapter titles, they're often referred to by these elements. The monkey, Sun Wukong, is identified with metal or gold. He'll be called... Oh, I didn't notice, but thinking back on it, 
Yes. Yes. And that's just to remind you, while we're having a good time beating up all the monsters, this is a metaphor for something Mm -hmm. else. This is a metaphor for the fight within your body. Okay? So the monkey is gold or metal. Zhu Wenang is the wood mother. But if you just get that and that Sha Wujing is linked to earth. So we need a harmonious balance between all these things, just like we need a harmonious balance between all the members of this fighting party on the journey. Very cool. Yes, that's the internal alchemy. So for Confucianism, this is really fun because it shoehorns it in in a way that is against the historical record. The historical monk the Journey to the West is based on, who really did travel for 17 years to India to get these sutras and bring them back. He didn't travel for 17 years. He was he away for 17 years. Okay. <laughs> a bunch of time in India. <laughs> he spent a bunch of time in India. Uh, while he was doing that, it was against the laws of China. He was not actually allowed to leave. And he decided that his personal enlightenment and the enlightenment of others was more important than the rules of his emperor. For a story that wants to work in Confucianism, too, and say that it can work with Buddhism, that's a hard thing. So immediately in the now fictional story, he goes to the emperor. And the emperor, told by a heavenly Buddha to allow him to go, does. Now, throughout the story, he is serving both his emperor and the Buddha, just like a good Chinese citizen can. Also, throughout the whole journey, he's talking about how worse than death is the idea that he would fail his emperor who's tasked him with this journey. Filial piety. Now, for Buddhism's uh, (laughs) presence in the novel, obviously the big story is that we're going to get Buddhist scriptures. So that's pretty obvious, the Buddhist influence on the surface. But also the name of the monkey, his last name, Wukong, literally means wake to the void. And that's to point to the emptiness and the unreality of all things that Buddhism shows us, okay? Mm -hmm. The thing that we're trying to get past so that we can achieve nirvana and enlightenment. There's a transformation that at one point takes place where a, uh, a hero that they encounter that's helping them, a bodhisattva, says that the reason she is able to transform into a monster to help them fight a monster is that, and I'm paraphrasing, the origin of the thought behind mm-hmm. both of them is the same thing. And that that's... reminds me of The Matrix. Yes. 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 It, 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 some, some of it is something like... the I was going to say about the somersaulting to get there, his mm-hmm. magical power to travel so far. Uh-huh. Part of that is understanding that there really isn't any distance between them at all. Right. It's like the moment in The Matrix where he says there is no spoon. Yeah. That's why the monkey can travel that distance. The monk not being able to understand that yet, still being limited by all the physical things that he sees, is why the journey takes so long. So these things are blended all throughout the book. I'll give just one big example of how it purposefully merges them together. There is a poem of four lines at one point. And the first two lines of the poem, a student of Confucius would recognize as the beginning of one of the canonical works of Confucianism. The latter two lines of this quatrain talk about Taoism, and it blends the two ideas together, creates a new poem out of the Mm -hmm. foundation of the old. Now, to finish up, I just want to talk a little bit about monkey and what he symbolizes. Uh, For those of you unfamiliar to Journey of the West, which I'm I'm guessing is, is a lot of you, monkey is the more traditional hero of the tale. He's the one that's doing most of the fighting, and we actually start the book with him. 
He is based on a phrase from Buddhism called the monkey of the mind. Taoism, Confucianism, and Buddhism all believe as part of their focus on self-cultivation. We need to harness the way our mind tends to get away from ourself, right? We need mm. to be able to control it and, and make it be still. And the monkey represents all the great power of the mind that can help you lead to enlightenment. That I would say that a lot of religions think that. In one way or another, you're trying to control your baser impulses through them, or they're giving you ways to do that. Yes, yes. And in this story, the party mm -hmm. represents all those competing desires and aspects of the psyche and the, the primal urges of the self that the person seeking enlightenment must learn to have work harmoniously toward the same goal. Uh, and monkey is the mind, and monkey the character mm -hmm. is also Tripitaka himself. Yeah, that makes sense. In fact, all of them are part of him. And when they achieve enlightenment together, it is as one being mm. achieving that. Very cool. Very cool. James, that was, it was really good. And that was really hard. I know that was. It's super hard. There's so much more. We could talk so much more about all the ways that the monkey symbolizes the mind and our relationship with it. The freedom we must give it, and 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 yet the control we must exert over it—it's it's wonderful, and it does give me a whole new perspective on the book. We talked a little bit about this before, so I'm not completely shocked by it. But having read it and then hearing this, I haven't finished the book. It's four volumes. It's huge. But <laughs> we're working on it, and we'll be working on it into the Dragon Ball episode. Yeah, but it makes me want to continue reading it and to see more of this. I'm really glad. I'm really glad. It made the more I researched, the more I got excited about it. Yeah, it's so cool. So I'm going to talk about this story and how it came to be and then how it came to be translated into English. So it's one of the four great Chinese novels. The others, just for reference, are Romance of the Three Kingdoms, The Plum in the Golden Vase, and Water Margin. I'd only heard of Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Which is another one of my favorite books, and someday I will get it onto this podcast. <laughs> now, part of what makes this book such a big deal is that unlike any of the great Western novels that I can think of, and please chime in, anyone tweet me, DM me if you can think of one too is that it permeates Chinese and world culture in a way that goes beyond the novel. It has been made into comic books, live-action films, TV shows, cartoons, parodies, video games, etc. And we do have franchises that permeate culture in that way, but not ne that necessarily have the prestige. So for a Western audience, think of the prestige of Canterbury Tales, with the marketing success of the Marvel Universe. Mm, yeah. That's how big this book is. Now, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, it is about the real-life Chinese monk from the Tang Dynasty, Xinzang. He traveled to the West, and by the West, I mean India, mm -hmm. <laughs> to bring holy sutras or Buddhist scriptures from India to China in 596. Now, during the Tang Dynasty, China was going through a religious revival. Anthony Yu, who uh, adapted or translated the book into one of the iterations I'll be talking about later, compares um, the emperor's patronage of Buddhism to Constantine's patronage of the Christian church. Mm -hmm. that, you talked about that a little bit as well. Now, 
Xinjiang was caught up in all this religious zeal, and he became a monk at 13. He studied under various masters throughout China and became convinced that without some of the foundational texts that were in India, other Buddhist texts would never be properly understood and enlightenment would never be achieved by the Chinese people. And though, like you mentioned at the time, it was forbidden for him to leave, he left. He lived in India for over a decade, studied Buddhist and Indian culture, and became revered in India, at least according to his biography. And the reason we have a biography of him is that the Chinese by this time had already invented printing. So they there were actually written biographies dated to closer when this monk was alive that we still have access to or have been copied since then. On the way back... He did have the foresight to request a pardon from the emperor and was quickly absolved, um, partly because the emperor owed his power to Buddhist support. He returned to China with copies of the classic Buddhist text, presented him to the emperor, was hailed as a hero, and lived out his life, a very long life. I think he lived till he was in his 70s, studying text and becoming more enlightened. So, of course, Sen Zhang comes back. He's this hero. And people tell his story. And at first, it is a non-fictional account of his story. This is what happened. But like most good stories, very quickly, it started becoming embellished. And how it was embellished depended on who was telling the story. I think this fits into your segment, but different elements in China would give it different slants. Maybe one would give it more of a Buddhist slant, or one would give it a Confucius slant. Others would put some of the monkey lore that permeates China in as well. And each retelling changed slash elevated the story. And the account of a religious man going on a journey to become more enlightened slowly turns into a fantasy derived from folk tales, religious lore, legends about supernatural deeds, mythical battles. You get the picture. I think the Norton Anthology of Chinese Literature actually describes the process of how this tale becomes reworked really well. Chinese popular literature can be described as a vast tapestry of interrelated stories whose strength lay not in inventing new plots, but in filling in details and saying what had been omitted in older ones. Now, the way it got turned into the book that we are reading today is described very well by David Lattimore in the New York Times, and he says that Sheng John's journey most likely became the subject of a Bai Wen, which was a morally instructive song and story routines performed by Buddhist entertainers in the late Tong times. And in the book, there is a mix of poetry and text, and at the end of the chapter, there are these cliffhangers. And he thinks that these are most likely modeled after the oral storyteller in the marketplace. So the, the poems might be the singing that is interjected in telling the story. And the suspenseful cliffhangers would be when they would pass around the hat and you'd have to put in the money if you wanted to hear the next part of oh, the story. Oh, that's great. Um, but Subscribe now. <laughs> and as far as different methods of telling the story, there was a 14th century opera of Tripitaka's story. And along the way, a very important character was added. The monkey king became the monk's disciple, and you talked about him in your segment. And many think the idea of the monkey king came from the Indian Ramayana and Chinese monkey lore. Also, I think I talked to you about this, where um, the actual monk was helped along by a barbarian. Oh, yeah. And maybe this barbarian was represented by the monkey. Well, it's the first time he has physical help. But another thing about the monkey is that part of why he gets his name is the symbolism of the letters used 
like there's animals associated with some of the Chinese characters. Mm-hmm. And so his the monkey is related to the characters used in his name, and his name has Buddhist religious significance right. as well. It's doing all of it at once. Right. And I don't know how all that became woven into the character today. I'm sure it happened in bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as written records go— There are books that date back to the Song Dynasty, which is between 960 and 1280, preserved in Japanese temples that include the story of Tripitaka. And by then, he already has some of his superpowered disciples. So the monkey came in fairly early. Now, the story that we officially know was written in 1592 during the Ming Dynasty, um, though beforehand, like I mentioned, it obviously played a huge part in Chinese uh, culture and folklore. And it hasn't changed much since the first edition. I mean, essentially, when we're reading the translation of that story, the way I think of it is that we're reading a translation, uh, we would be reading a translation of Shakespeare. Yes. If Shakespeare had been translated into another language. The author is anonymous, though credit was eventually given to Wu, and I looked up this name, I could not find how to pronounce it. It's Wu Chang'en, but now many scholars don't believe that it's him. So the first real, you know, translation of the book, credit is given to Wu Chang'en. But nowadays, I think most scholars say, no, it wasn't him. And there's a whole reason why they don't believe it's him, but I'm, I'm not going to get into yeah, that because it, it, it confused me. It's hotly debated, but I will say that there, whoever it is that put the final thing together, it sounds like they were taking a best of Mm -hmm. you know, for all the different stories. And then their credit is how they wove it together. Right. And they, while the author is undecided, most scholars, I would say almost every scholar, tends to agree that the whole book was written by the same person. The, Mm. The flow and the tone stay consistent throughout. The first Western language adaptation appeared in 1857 in French by Theodore Pave. And it was just a little, little segments of it, just the first part. And then there were some other English translations that I'm not even going to mention because they were never the whole book or even close to the whole story. They were just little segments from it. Arthur Whaley was a British scholar and translator of Chinese and Japanese. Interesting note, he was self-taught and never actually visited Asia. He was fluent in Chinese and Japanese, though. And he published uh, a book in 1942 called Monkey. Folk Novel of China, and an American edition came out the next year. It was 300 pages, 30 chapters, and one-sixth of what the original Journey to the West was. And this is a quote from Whaley about why he cut it down the way he did. The original book is indeed of immense length and is usually read in abridged forms. The method adopted in these abridgments is to leave the original number of separate episodes but drastically reduce them in length, particularly by cutting out dialogue. I have, for the most part, adopted the opposite principle, omitting many episodes, but translating those that are retained almost in full, leaving out, however, most of the incidental incidental passages in verse, which goes very bad into English. And he has been criticized for simply passing over parts of the story that were hard to translate or for the reader to understand, and he left out many of the religious interpretations and wrote this book kind of as a fun romp. Yeah, that's the thing that really annoyed me reading about him because it's a Westerner coming in and grabbing this book that is an allegory of three culturally incredibly significant religions for a book that's an allegory and and taking the religion out of an allegory. Right, but he might not have quite understood that it was an allegory. And it is still considered by most an authentic translation of Journey for the West and kind of his take on it 
being written for a Western audience in a way that maybe a Western audience can fully grasp. Now, the other big translation, the one that we read is by, or are reading, I should say, is by Anthony C. Yu, who was born in Hong Kong in 1938. He's the son of a soldier who became a general in Chiang Kai-shek's army. And during World War II, he was very young and his family fled to China. And his grandfather would distract him with tales from Journey to the West. And he said he would badger his grandfather for stories all the time, even when they were in very perilous situations. And... The family eventually moved to Taiwan in 1951, which I think you would have to do if your father was a general in Chiang Kai-shek's army. Yep. Losers move. (laughs) Yes. Uh, His education before getting his doctorate in Chicago was focused on Western languages. His knowledge of Chinese tradition came from home and private tutoring, so he was never formally educated in Chinese culture. That's everybody who's tackling Journey to the West for the West. (laughs) But because you grew up in a Chinese household, he understood more of the references in the original work. And when he decided to take on the translation, felt responsibility to bring these references to light. And so he wrote a system of explanatory notes to explain the religious aspects and other parts of the story that a Western reader might not intuitively know. Before translating Journey to the West, his use of English was limited to translating short pieces for critical writing, class, or work. And he said translating this novel was a sudden plunge into deep water with scant knowledge of swimming. He had no option or other means of support, and he said he could only just do the whole thing or not do it at all. And no one else had ever attempted it. No. Uh, Not in the way that he had. Yeah, not to do the whole thing. And he said that it requires... Uh, close reading, but that's not the only difficult demand. It needs rigorous attention to rhetoric, style, tone, and a knowledge of the intended effects in two languages, which you can imagine the amount of knowledge you need to translate this book, quote unquote, properly. You need an incredible mastery of two languages and two sets of customs. Yes, just understanding the book and every level of symbolism on its own can be a feat. I would think that would be a feed for any Chinese reader. Um, an example, and I think you talked about this a little bit, but the satire is in one of the poems is only one level. Um, it's using limericks to make fun of three traditions all at once without actually mentioning any of the traditions that it's making fun of. And you have to understand that and then translate that into another language where they have no knowledge of these traditions. Um, He said that his work also benefited from the modern Japanese translation, uh, which identified the Taoist origin of half the poems in the novel. Um, And the Japanese have more of a Taoist background. So they were able to kind of the trans Japanese translation was able to point that out a little bit more. And I want to also talk about the success of both the translations, because I don't know if you see it in my notes. Which one is the most successful? Do you think? I'm going to guess Arthur Whaley's. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, Which. When you think about it, it makes sense. Arthur Whaley's translation is 300 pages. And we have one of the volumes of Journey to the West that I've been reading. And it's huge. It's 600 pages about, including the introduction. But when you see it, it's this huge undertaking. And it's not easy reading. So to read a fun romp for 300 pages is much more appealing to most people than to read, I don't how many pages is that? 2,000 pages yeah. at least? He grabbed the most action-y bits, but I, I will say um, I was disparaging of his taking out all the elements of a foreign culture to uh, sell his new Western version. But <laughs> uh, Anthony C.U. gives credit to how well-written 
his version is. It is. And he also brought the story to the West, and he introduced the story to many people who would never have heard it before. And I'll get into this later, but honestly, I think that's also part of the journey of this story, that it continues to be adapted. There have been other translations. I'm going to name a couple. Maxing Hong Kingston's Tripmaster Monkey, his fate book, and Patricia Chow's Monkey King each bring the author's own sensibilities to the story. So that, again, like I said earlier, the story continues to evolve. And like I mentioned earlier, it's been adapted into movies, TV shows. Uh, one that we've done already on this podcast, Into the Badlands, is based on Journey to the West. Dragon Ball Z, which we're going to talk about next week, is based on Journey to the West. Video games and comic books and so much more. And especially after doing this research, what I really think makes this so special about this particular story and novel is that it's actually a continuation of how it's always been told, that new cultures or new people take this story and then adapt it and change it. And it's nice that we have the OG translation, trans, I mean, the OG version translated into English, but the story gets to continue to evolve and continue to permeate culture. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really cool idea, especially since the way you were talking about how the story was originally developed. The novel is a culmination of storytelling over hundreds of years. Yeah. And it's a leaping off point for all these other stories now. So now we're going to move into our opinions segment. We're, we're more going to talk about why we picked Journey to the West to go with Dragon Ball Z. So why did we link them, James? Uh, Toriyama has... Ex- Who's Toriyama? Akira Toriyama is the creator of Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, and Dragon Ball Super, which are the focus of our next episode. Okay, and he said? He said explicitly that he was influenced by Journey to the West in creating Dragon Ball. Well, that's an easy question to answer. (laughs) The main character, Goku, looks like a human, but he's got a monkey tail for some reason. (laughs) And... Do we think these two will compare well? I think so. I mean, when you look at what Journey to the West is about, it's hard to see the combination of Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism as a moral point about how we're all trying to get to the same heaven in Dragon Ball. Mm -hmm. That's not there. (laughs) But it is so clearly born out of that Chinese folktale tradition that Journey to the West is a monumental work in. The way that the characters' powers work are right out of Chinese folktales. And does it make you more excited to talk about Dragon Ball Z? It's too much. It's it's actually a little overwhelming how excited I am, both about this book, learning so much about it, and getting to apply it to Dragon Ball next. It's like, I, I've been looking forward to this for like a year. Yes. Please tune in next week for <laughs> James's greatest work. <laughs> no, it's just I'm most excited, which makes it harder, too. Um, but I I thoroughly enjoyed this. I am not as big a Dragon Ball Z fan as James is, but I think it's really cool to see the ne- a different iteration of it and how it's evolved, especially after learning about all of this. I, I'm excited to get to explore how it was used to create Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. Super cool. One of the things I've been thinking recently is that our show is kind of like finding your favorite nerd topics and then meeting their parents. <laughs> like if you met somebody in life and you were like, you're really awesome. I'd love to meet your family. Oh, my God. Your dad is great. <laughs> you know? Hopefully. You hope Hopefully. your dad's great. Yeah, sometimes. Well, you know what? We've Some, been lucky so far. We've been lucky so far. But you know what? We've also had nerd topics where the grandparents are problematic. 
right? <laughs> They're from another era. We don't want to take everything they believed. Um, but Claire, what, what did you think of Journey to the West? How did you enjoy reading it? Oh, I loved it. I'm so grateful that I read it. I would never have read it if you hadn't picked this. I mean, we did Outlander for me. Now we're doing Dragon Ball Z for you. This was not my pick at all. But I am so grateful to be reading Journey to the West. And it's that I get to read one of the most famous books ever written. And a really cool thing happened at work where uh, a colleague of mine who is from Hong Kong picked the book up off my desk and asked who was reading this. You know, I had this in my house growing up. So that was really cool, too, that, oh, wow, it is, you know, I the person who I work with who is from China or, you know, maybe not China, depending on politically where you stand, but that he grew up reading Journey to the West. So it it was a cool thing to talk to him about it as well. Yeah, I feel like the book can act as a gateway to a whole Eastern storytelling mm-hmm. tradition that we get to start appreciating. More. Right. And so many things that I now think of as, oh, that was definitely influenced by Journey to the West. Yes. Yes. That's why we do our show. Yes. So join us in two weeks when we get to talk about Dragon Ball Z. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm James Foey. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at DSRA Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at James Fowey Jr. That's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. I can be found at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find the other host who is today the producer. Very special role reversal. Uh, Kyle Willoughby at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. You can learn more about Journey. Journey to the West on our Facebook page. Our producer for today is Kyle Willoughby, and I think the character he would be in Journey to the West is Baji, the uh, pigman who is a slave to his baser impulses. He's been waiting for how many episodes <laughs> to get that in? <laughs> oh, I've ha- I get to endure a lot of digs, folks. Although that one's a little bit much if you read about Baji. Anyway, our logo is done by Patty Highland. And I just want to give an extra special thank you to Patty for our logo. Earlier this month, we were at PodCon in Seattle. We had a wonderful time. And at our booth, we got to see Patty's art on this big banner that made me so grateful to her all over again, as we are every time we do the show. But extra special thank you there. Our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. And if he were a character in Journey to the West, I think he would be Baji the Pigman, because he is he is a slave to his baser impulses. You see. Once again, this is Dragon's Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks with Dragon Ball Z.